Hey, I'm Danny Belvin. And I'm Danica Brown. And we are biracial unicorns. And we are not the millennials you want moving into your neighborhood. <laughs> I feel like that was a big step for me calling us millennials, because that's still really hard for me to accept sometimes. We're elder millennials. And see, that's two words I also don't like that you, that you have put together to make this label that I'm just stuck with now. Apologies, but it's true. Yeah, it's 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 super, super true because I love avocado toast. <laughs> yes. This is a little off topic, but mm. I had this conversation with a friend who pointed out that generation labels are kind Mm. of classist and ridiculous so he's older than i am he's 10 years older than i am and i was like making a comment about how i have more in common with him than i do with some other millennials right Mm -hmm. culturally and background wise and he's like because these labels are classes even though he's gen x and i'm a millennial the main difference between us and the circumstances in which we grew up is like different cultural references Mm. we might talk about gem or teenage mutant ninja turtles but our situations in which we grew up were pretty similar oh i like that did we just decide what the next episode was gonna be (laughs) generations and how they're (laughs) bullshit yeah perhaps i don't i I think it's just like another weird label identity to either explain or excuse away certain types of ideals or behaviors Mm -hmm. and so well it's because i'm gen y or gen z or okay boomer or that's millennials i think it's just another way and yes i actually do believe like there's topical like you said there's things to it of like oh if you went to school with the original max with the color behind side of them you know what i mean if your computer if you were lucky enough to have a computer lab this is what it looks like and if you had floppy disks like you know and it's there's this there's something to it because once again you're gonna have a kinship to that but i do believe that there is a little bit of of a classism nature to that Ooh. Girl, how are you going to like pop that cherry right at the beginning of the show? (laughs) How are you going to do that? I'm like, that's so juicy. And we can't. That's not what we're biting into today. But it is, girl. We're talking about class. (laughs) We are talking about class and a whole bunch of other issues. wrapped up in this beautiful little shiny package very modern looking package very cool very hip this package of gentrification Ooh, and let me tell you when if you say it enough times (laughs) (laughs) it is i you know me in pronouncing things so if by the end of the show it just sounds like gentrification i'm just trying to work on that diction we are we're cracking into it today it is once again i was telling Danny, if it wasn't a divisive topic we wouldn't it wouldn't make it to the show so i'm really really stoked on it and it's actually uh, at least for me it's really personal because because I am about to enter into the most adult thing I probably am going to do outside of marriage and children. And that is, I'm going to be buying a house here really soon. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say having a child is very adult. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, glad I, you, I'm glad you included that. I did. Like, 
that's a level of adult that I'm unfamiliar with. <laughs> Babies. I'm not a baby having a baby. As I feel like as an old woman. Uh, but I am. I am. And Danny, you, you've actually, how long ago was it when you bought your house? Uh, two years ago. Oh, wow. So uh, two and a like, half years ago. Still fresh. Yeah, it's not too long ago now. Mm-hmm. And, and so with that, I think once again, with us being women of color, as like we like to say, it all comes down to race. We always have to be very mindful of how race plays into deciding where we're going to live, how we're going to live. And so through mm. this lens and what's going on particularly now, also the Black Lives Matter movement, we're going to crack this open as best we can. It is a massive topic, but we just kind of want to give that little tasty taste, a little history and and see where people stand on it. I'm actually really excited to see people's reaction and their mindset and views on this particular topic. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Going back to this class thing, which we decided was kind of bullshit, we are in like a unique position also, not only as women of color, but also as millennials buying homes Mm -hmm. because it is like this world that we live in is difficult to buy a, a house. There's the affordability of buying a house. There's the fact that there are lower marriage rates between millennials, uh, uh, harder credit, student loan debt. Oh, yeah. And a lot of millennials live in urban centers where it is very expensive to buy a home. And while I live in the biggest city in our state, it is by no means like very urban or very expensive compared to lots of other places. Mm, And on top of that, so we have all this, especially that school debt that's very crippling. You're there's a huge pressure to buy a home. Like, why are you renting? Renting's ridiculous. It's so expensive. You need to buy a home. I know, like twenty something year, like brand new, twenty one, twenty two year olds were being first time home buyers. I'm like, that's that's great. Kudos to you. But I also think there's this. That's part of the the American dream. You got to get that degree. You got to get that house. You got to this obtaining of mm. the, this wealth and status, and it's 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 intense. Girl, you know what I have to say about that. <laughs> I do, and I'm <laughs> excited to crack into it. What's that's another thing too. I still think this is really unknown. This is nothing new whatsoever. No. We're not. This is not like a buzzword. I, I couldn't stand articles. And books that started off with the buzzword of them, like, can we not? <laughs> I had a hard time if it started off with it being a buzzword. I was like, and I've I've turned off now. It, it's not this this phenomenon has been around. Well, the term itself has been around since the '60s, but even before then, it traces back way longer before then. So, yeah, let's let's kind of just do this thing. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely want to get into this term because a lot of research that I did didn't even define gentrification before diving in, which I thought was like ridiculous. Uh-huh. Like, just assume that everyone knows what gentrification is without even explaining. But I think before we can get into gentrification, we have to look back at the history of housing. Mm -hmm. and BIPOC people. And I think you already kind of brought this up, this idea of of redlining. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we really have to talk about before we can talk about gentrification. So, Damika, can you give us a little bit of background on what redlining is 
Like, where did it start? When did it start? Why is it a thing? Why was it a thing? How is it affecting us now? Just just wrap that all up very, very quickly and concisely, will you please? Okay. All right. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. let's take it back. Just to- kidding. Just yeah, kidding. So right? No pressure. Let's take it back to the Great Depression. <laughs> but no, for real. It's a, Let's take it all the way back. Let's take it back to the Great Depression. And we mm. have once again driven by trying to stimulate the economy. We've this is where the birth of the 30 year mortgage kind of came from. We, it's mm-hmm. from the birth of the New Deal, the National Housing Act of 1934, being like, this was part of the American dream that now every day, average blue collar working families could be able to afford homes. And so, 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 of course, on top of this, also the veteran loans being such a huge deal, there was this mm-hmm. boom of people being able to get housing. Now, what else is going on in this time period? Horrific racism, right? right? So on top of being able to say who gets what property, where we're putting people, zoning, schools, transportation. I mean, the world is literally growing at this rapid pace. We start having this creation of the homeowners loan corporation, right? This is where this was created in order to do resident security maps. So when we have city planners, they have to look, to look at the map of these particular areas. So let's take Albuquerque because we both know Albuquerque. They'd be looking at a massive map. Where are we going to put certain housing areas, restaurants, schools, transportation? What they would do is have okay. developers go out to these certain areas and start taking a look at these certain neighborhoods. Are these city planners who are doing this? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, City planners, architects, things of that nature who are coming in and deciding of what's going on and what's going to go where. And they start putting uh, different neighborhoods into these zones. And that's what we're talking about with red lighting. They would have different zones of green, blue, yellow, red. And what would be the defining tactic of these zones were who were the inhabitants of it? For the, so we would have mm-hmm. green zones, which would be what well, we'd say like these really great thriving areas. This is where we'd get a lot of the attention. This is where the most expensive and well put schools would be going into predominantly white, great jobs, educated area. Blue is perfect. It's be the working class white for the most part. Yellows would be areas that were about to fall into decrepitation. There would be a lot of poor white. And then also we would finally go down to red, which would have a lot of immigrants, foreigners, and of course, actually on paperwork, Negroid inhabitants. And this is where it's a physical map. And it's so interesting that you have to kind of like argue with people that this is actually a real thing. So when city planners would go and look at these maps, they'd have this color coded system in order to say, what are we going to put where? And also for housing agencies, when people would come in order to get mortgage loans and get approved for these things, they would ask where they were going to get it, who was inhabiting it, things of that nature. And through this color coded system, is where they would decide and whether it'd be approved, if they were going to get it and how much, so forth and so on. Because they were worrying about defaulting of loans, investment, so forth and so on, even though in yellow and red areas that did not prove to be part of the issue or problem. There was not an increase of defaulting on housing loans and mortgages within these areas. It really was about demographic. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to note at this time that people of color 
were denied access to loans in different neighborhoods too because they were seen as as risky investments. And so that wouldn't allow them to buy or repair homes in the neighborhoods that they were already living in. That coupled with with the background that you gave, with also the phenomenon of, of white flight, where mm-hmm. a lot of white people did start to leave the center of urban areas and move into suburban areas was like a, a big part in developing these these centers, these different places with these different sort of color-coded system of rating. And as a, a part of that, the the suburban developers agreed to not sell houses to Black people in order to guarantee the loans in those neighborhoods. So it's like, it's happening on both ends, mm-hmm. right? It is. And what's crazy is that we, at least for me personally, I know we talk about history I think people of color in these particularly red zones were looked at segregating themselves, but it really was a product of where does a neighborhood go? Where does a community go? And so I've always thought that was a very interesting idea that from the outside, it looked like self-segregation and not where are you supposed to live, <laughs> if, if not mm-hmm. that. And so when we look at that, it takes like what another, what, 30 30, 40 years before the Fair Housing Act protection kind of comes into play in the late 60s. But but even then, I mean, this is, <laughs> that's trying to put like a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Yeah, I guess I kind of skip forward with that too, because it was actually part of the FHA that mm-hmm. suburban developers agreed to not sell houses to black people Mm -hmm. in suburbs like (laughs) that it's it's all so blatantly racist exactly and they kept slapping on these ideas that there would be public outcry and they would like you said make these programs that actually were no help whatsoever it's very detrimental because people got to pick and choose when they used it Mm -hmm. there was no one enforcing this there was no accountability for that And we see the impact today, to this day of what's happening. And it's not just housing. And when we talk about housing, Mm -hmm. we've brought this up beforehand. That impacts wealth, it impacts education, it impacts your health and policies and policing as well. Right. Most people who own a house, I don't have a statistic to back this up, but so it's a little bit of an assumption, but most people who own a house, like that is the biggest investment that you have, Mm -hmm. right? And that is like actual wealth that you are able to leverage to make more wealth. And so when we're looking at the fact that people of color and Black people in particular have been excluded from the opportunity to build that wealth. And it's it's huge generational wealth as well. We're looking at the continuation of these coercive racist systems that were already established. And so even now, decades removed from that, we're still seeing the, the long-term impacts of it. Exactly. And I like what you're saying about that, that long-term legacy wealth, because you're completely right. If you have property, if you have housing, being able to hand that down to your children, that's sustainable and not being able to have that. It's horrific. And we're seeing mass displacement also amongst people of color, which we'll get into a little bit more with actual gentrification. 
But we're seeing that and we're seeing the outplay of this, like I said, amongst people of color upon their mental well-being, their health, because normally these areas become quite decrepit. They fall underneath shortage. They have people who will put lack of interest in upkeeping buildings. And so they're talking about these neighborhoods that are normally going to be in industrial areas. So water quality, air quality is going to be very poor. And because houses and taxes pay for schools, the taxation upon these areas are not being able to filter high amounts of money into the schools. So the schools Mm -hmm. are normally going to be very, very poor and lacking education. And then we're also going to be talking about policing as well. If they're seeing these high amounts of crime, poverty within this area, if I'm someone who's in the force and in this time, knowing that someone's a red zone, I'm already going to go in there with a mindset, whether it's true or not, of a certain level of crime and aggression And either I'm going to ignore it, which is going to cause more issues within the community, or I'm going to go in there with a certain level of an ideal. I'm going to go in there with a certain level of expectation that may not be necessarily true, a defensiveness, and perhaps even fear, which I think, no, I don't think, I know that's what's actually playing out currently within the policing and certain amounts of these areas that we're seeing with high amounts of people of color. Yes, yes. That also goes to show like you mentioned already, it's not just about housing, but it's mm-hmm. it feeds into these other systems that are regularly impacting people and the effects on people of color are very starkly worse uh, than the effects on uh, white people. So with that in mind, let's get into gentrification a little bit. And I also want to talk a little bit, maybe before we get into gentrification, mm. we should talk a little bit about urban renewal. You know, this, <laughs> this, this, if we want to talk jargon, this is like pre-gentrification gentrification. Yes. Because of all this white flight, because of these redlining, because of the establishment of these systems predominantly impacting central city neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. which happen to be low-income households and communities of color, there was this spike in crime. There was this pushback to do urban renewal. (laughs) <laughs> within these systems to clean up clean up our cities and in fact because of this these lower income households and these communities of color ended up bearing the brunt of a lot of these programs which included the development and expansion of our national highway systems mm-hmm. so i'm going to say it cuz we are most familiar with albuquerque mm-hmm. In Albuquerque, we have two highways and they intersect and it's called the big eye, which is yeah. stupid and I hate it. <laughs> I- <laughs> it's super ugly. Super ugly. I myself live in a low-income neighborhood, a historically ignored and disenfranchised neighborhood that is like within a mile of the big eye. And really, you see, if you trace where all of the highway goes within our city is it goes through all these low income mm-hmm. neighborhoods and that's by design and actually there is and this is relevant a little bit to my own personal life when i visited a bunch of graveyards for my birthday recently <laughs> there is a huge graveyard in the neighborhood in albuquerque of east san jose and it's the san jose cemetery mm-hmm. and it is 
it it's actually there's two cemeteries yep. now on either side of the highway because literally they just put the highway through the cemetery. They sure did. Um, and then closer to my house, there's two other cemeteries that are broken up by another highway. So like really it's like not even the the dead are are, mm-hmm. are safe from being disenfranchised and moved in order for urban renewal to take place. Exactly. And I'm also thinking about programs on our decree of these streets like the war on drugs. War on crime. Yes. Where yes. would they start? And that's what I'm saying it would start aggressive policing and programming from these areas first is almost like a test run where mm-hmm. they would hopefully it would trickle down amongst these other areas but this these are the areas that would come underneath unscrutinized pressures in order to like you said to clean up and make way for progress and it's really just an excuse really <laughs> it's oh that jargon ah oh, it's the worst yeah yeah I, it's I, all yeah so I know once again, kind of off topic a little bit. How was your experience buying a house in your mind when applying for mortgages and thinking about areas? Was race a bit of a concern for you or uh, were you worried about that? Ye- well, okay. I wasn't not in the way probably that is typical, I guess. But yes, to a certain extent. We were very interested in particular areas. That was like our number one concern when buying buying a house. And we are were most interested in the central part of the city. So I was very concerned. I really wanted to buy in one of the older established neighborhoods because I feel like, oh God, and I'm going to sound like a gentrifier, because I feel like they have more character and personality and I wasn't interested <laughs> in living in a place surrounded by like white people. Mm. So now I sound like such a gentrifier and it's Ooh. a little disgusting. But We're going to talk I- about that later though. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I was very interested in like these these more historic neighborhoods. So I wasn't necessarily concerned explicitly about the race of the neighborhood but it was it was a a concern i i suppose just because mm. of the areas that i was interested in tended to be of a similar racial background which is also similar to my own mm. Mm, i like that was there especially being as a woman of color the process of it. Did you find in talking and dealing with mortgage lenders that that was a very easygoing process? I mean, it's never easy. Yeah, I would be surprised if anyone says it's easy. For me, it was very overwhelming. I felt like I didn't know anything about any of it. And honestly, like, my mother didn't own a house. <laughs> so like mm. I, I, I wasn't familiar with the process. I didn't really have, and now it makes me sound like I'm a child, but I'm not. I didn't really have an adult <laughs> in my life <laughs> who mm. had gone through the process. So that felt like overwhelming. Mm. And that's not entirely true because my husband, his parents do own a house. So his parents had been through the process, but even that, you know, 30 some years ago when they bought their house, it was entirely different mm-hmm. than our process of buying our house. So um, true. I found it all overwhelming, but I also felt a little bit like 
like a ninja because I have a white husband. <laughs> mm. So I think like any weird race things, I always have my husband to kind of be be facilitator, <laughs> be the shield <laughs> in those situations, which is a little unfair, I think. But yeah, I found I found it overwhelming. Mm. I found it I don't know. We we did a lot of of work and research and sometimes it necessitated some individual work and there was the lender, maybe it wasn't the lender that we ended up going with, but there was a lender who we got an offer from and they listed my race as white because they had only spoken to my husband. They didn't uh. ask us race. They just like filled out that part of the form on their own after speaking with my husband when they gave us like the nu- the numbers back. And I found that like so disturbing that they just assumed that whoever was married to him was also white. It's so, so strange. Ooh, that put a nasty taste in my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was so like irrationally, maybe it's not irrational, but I was so upset about it. Yeah. But it's one of those things of like the fact that it's still on the paperwork as a whole Mm -hmm. is really actually really upsetting and a, a thing that a lot of people might not have to worry about. And it's definitely a conversation my husband and I have just had recently about who's going to be the front person, the front man mm-hmm. of this, and how I kind of the same thing of relying on that privilege that I have being in a mixed marriage of just saying, I it breaks my heart as an independent person to say, you might have to take the lead on this, not because I don't know what's going on. It's like, I want us to get the best treatment and the best deal and the littlest of heartache because we're also moving countries on top of getting a house. And I don't know if my little heart can take <laughs> that being an issue on top of everything else mm-hmm. that we're going through. And having that conversation was so devastating for both of us and us trying to Mm. do it in a way that's really real and rational like these are facts this is a reality for us it's not something we're making up and how do we cope with this do we go head on and try to fight the man in the process meanwhile this they're holding our livelihood and like we said our investment wealth in their hands or do we play into it it's it's one of those things we're having some serious talks and i'm still not there of what to do but having these open conversations about gentrification and this segregation within the mortgage lending world and the the systemic racism that's within it we have to have these conversations people need to know that there is this is still going on (laughs) <laughs> and it's 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 complicated, right? I think mm-hmm. within my own marriage, and we've had this conversation like explicitly, my husband and I, we kind of have our our roles that we play within our marriage. And I'm not talking like gender roles or like things mm-hmm. like that. But he as an extroverted, like likable sort of person is kind of like the face <laughs> of our marriage, <laughs> like the public relation, the public facing yeah. face of our marriage. Marriage because I think he's better at those things. Exactly. (laughs) And I tend to be like the behind the scenes researcher in our marriage. So Mm. those are kind of like the roles we play with these larger things in our lives. And it's, it's not necessarily split along race or along gender, but those are just like our personality traits. Mm. Uh, When buying a house, it was interesting too and further complicated by the fact that He's self-employed and he at that point was working like smaller jobs with less income than I had. So I 
had to be the primary signer because I had the larger income. So that was like a further complication to consider where I'm like, be the face of this. But actually, I have to be the face of like, (laughs) it was so complicated. Ooh, ugh. I know everyone listening just been like, go on. <laughs> I want to know more. This sounds great. <laughs> this is a great process. But it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy. Sorry, we got off. But I think it's important for people to hear other people's experiences because you're either going to relate or you're not. But you need to hear the other side of we have multiple things when making this massive investment in our life. And so... As we're mm-hmm. talking about, a lot of millennials are there. It's stressful. But. Yeah. And we touched on this, this idea of also gentrification playing a role in the home buying process. So let's back up. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what gentrification is. I found this really great definition because many people want to throw their definitions around, but this is from the Urban Displacement Project. And I really liked how they put it. It's a process of a neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disinvested neighborhood by means of real estate investments and new higher income residents moving in, as well as a demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of an educational or racial makeup of residents. And I felt like that was a really good because there's some ones where it's just like when Whitey comes in and takes your stuff and other ones were trying to be quite flowery. And I thought this was a very factual kind Mm -hmm. of I'm like, yes, this ticks all the boxes. This is how I would describe it to most people. Yeah, I I think the fact that it has historically disinvested Mm -hmm. in there is really important. I think like the dictionary definition is like much more succinct, but lacks that nuance Mm -hmm. where it it is basically Whitey comes in, but it says... It says the process of renovating and improving a house or district so it conforms to middle class taste. But we know that coded language, right? Middle class taste. They are talking about whitey. And then a secondary definition of the process of making a person or activity more refined or polite. Like all of this is just like seeped in like white supremacy judgment i can't it even handle really it really say refined and polite yes yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really polite you guys <laughs> Ooh, and i'm ooh. hella refined <laughs> her pinky's out right now it You're is right? it is all the way out oh <laughs> my goodness my tea oh uh, okay so uh, so what are what does gentrification look like practically? If people are saying, okay, you guys have said this word a thousand times already. You've talked about these zones, but what does it physically look like if people had no clue? I think there's there's lots of examples of it. I think for me, I, I lived in a neighborhood. It's like the neighborhood next to the neighborhood I live in now. <laughs> In downtown Albuquerque, when I moved there, it was a sketchy neighborhood. It was Mm. so sketch, right? (laughs) (laughs) And by that, I mean, it was like obviously very disinvested, very disenfranchised. Like the people who lived there didn't have a lot of say. There was a lot of crime. There were a lot of older buildings. There was like a lot going on. And I think there was a very active movement to clean it up, to fix up the houses. People started, and I think this was this is common. We see this in a lot of gentrification. People 
buy, developers buy, or people move in to a house in order to flip it. So they oh, will girl, you fix know that's it in up. my notes. Yeah. <laughs> Fix it up, make it nice, sell it for a lot more money. And there are definitely mixed feelings about this. And this is a conversation we've been having with our neighbors in our neighborhood because there was a lot of discussion about putting a new soccer stadium just a couple blocks from our house. And they haven't decided where the soccer stadium is going to be, but like one of like the the final three contenders was a couple blocks from our house. And my husband was super against it because of gentrification and all that. And my neighbors, on the other hand, were like, great, let's do it. We can, you know, raise our property values. (laughs) Like this is all great. So it's like, it's like the double-edged sword, right? Like Mm -hmm. on one hand, it is good because property values do go up. But on the other hand, you start to disenfranchise people more because people can no longer afford to live there. We see this in huge urban centers happening very drastically. Like San Francisco, that whole city is just like gentrification. And I'm surprised (laughs) I haven't seen it on more lists. Right? Denver is huge too. I think about maybe it was four years ago when I was there. It was it's the whole other story. I was stuck on a train. Mm. broken down i like <laughs> messed oh, up no. my knee i couldn't bend my knee it was a whole thing we had to be rescued by the fire department anyway so i got to oh, talking to these people because you know i wouldn't be talking to people otherwise i got to talking to these people on this train with me and it was from the airport so there were a fair amount of people who actually worked at the airport who were on wow. this train and they were telling me that they could no longer afford to live in denver so they were actually coming from like far out from the city where they could afford to live and how they had seen prices like double and triple in just like a couple of short years. So that's another like example of of gentrification and what it looks like. What do you have um, any other examples you'd like to share? I do. You know, I have like one uh, from Albuquerque and then actually living here in England, which is actually a really interesting topic in itself. I remember being really young at my first real clicking to it as uh, once again, Albuquerque is very, very old. We have our old high school building is actually not the building we went to school. There was this right before you got down. But that's where my mom went to school. My mom graduated high school. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. So it's this really old, decrepit, when at least when I was young, it was like falling apart. Oh, yeah. Dilapidated, seriously haunted. If you went there, you could possibly die. You could fall through floors. It was just terrible. It was just not an eyesore. It was just this dilapidated old building. And it had just been there for so long, right before you got to the real true heart of downtown. And then suddenly, it just was wrapped up with scaffolding. And was like, these are going to be new apartments. And I remember that just being like, everyone was like, oh, they've gotten the outside done. Oh, they've gotten this done. It was so exciting. It was to be able to still have like maintain some of the old lockers and rooms and mm-hmm. so much character. And we would watch the news and see how far they've gotten. And when they were finally done, they would have them open to be viewed. And it was on the news. And girl, then they dropped that price tag. Girl, I just remember thinking who could that was my first thing, even as like a selfish teenager, who can afford that? And then next thing for real for a loft, for a a loft, you guys, it was absurd. And we're talking like late 90s, early 2000s. And then all of a sudden around them, there used to be like little mom and pop places and Mercados. And then these really nice, lush restaurants started popping up around them. 
to where. Mm -hmm. And now they call that whole area East Downtown Edo. Edo. Yeah, there's like signs everywhere. (laughs) And (laughs) my mother actually, she lived in that neighborhood, Hunting Heights. Hunting Heights. She lived in that neighborhood like right after she graduated from high school. And she is like her mind is blown anytime she's in that area because, you know, we're talking in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> it was it was entirely different. And mm-hmm. I like the way we remember it was like, you know, it was old, but it was like she says even worse then, yeah. <laughs> which is interesting because uh, it's now it's like fancy. Gosh, that's so weird. And I think that's crazy. I've been able to come home twice since moving overseas. And every time I come, I get that little bit of culture shock of them trying to label something new and different. And and just being here in this country on the other spectrum, where even where I live, which is predominantly white, I, you know, I go to places like London and Cambridge, to where once again, on public transportation, you will see people who will travel an hour or more outside of the main city because they can't afford to live there. And mm-hmm. it's it's nuts. And even for me, um, my family, you know, is military. We knew this lovely couple that just got married and they lived where we lived out for the country. But because they've opened up a new highway, they made it a dual lane. More people from the base who have a steady income that a lot of people can look up can come and live into this area. Well, more and more people from the military were coming here. And so of course, landlords are raising the rent prices up because they know that those who are in the military could afford it. So now I knew this lovely new married couple who were like, we can't afford any new rental properties and we can't afford to buy yet. So we have to move over 20, 30 minutes further down the road to go to like the next little village in order to find something within our budget. And it was just even on these kind of micro levels within overseas, I see it on this scale of a lot of people who don't drive, have to rely on public transportation, cannot afford to work and live in the same area. And the housing crisis here is super real. They're trying to build more houses because we don't have enough, but they're not affordable houses. So it's like, who are they building these houses for? (laughs) Yeah, I was looking at some lists of the cities with the highest levels of gentrification. And these are like using old numbers now pre- like mark. No, I guess it was after the market crashed uh, the last time. Mm. 2010 to 2013, I think, was like the time that they were looking at. And Albuquerque is number four on the list. Wow. Which I found really interesting because it is generally a pretty affordable place to live. But I remember moving back to Albuquerque in 2013 and like rental properties were so much higher than when I had left three years before. At that point, at this point now, I guess, of 2013 numbers, they calculated there's 202 distinct neighborhoods within Albuquerque. 23% of them are gentrified neighborhoods. Yeah. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. It's, you know, and that's what you, you find these places that are, like you said, the house flipping. Girl? Mm, girl? <laughs> If I see one more show. (laughs) And you know the worst part is? I'm sure I'm going to watch it too. That's the worst part. I am part of the problem because I'm just like, oh, I wonder what's under that carpet. Oh, I hope it's wood floors. Like I am just the absolute worst. And it's like watching the process, but also knowing 
that it's it's aiding and abetting the process of gentrification. And it's like we were all watching these shows, enjoying it. And I know quite a few people who actually do it for a living and just thinking of like tech on it. This is just uh, but you feel like you said you feel like you're part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's. I don't know. It's such a slippery slope, too, because it's nice to be able to, like, update a house, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's nice. It's, it's, uh, that's great. Like, let's upkeep houses and keep them looking nice and renovate them. But I think, you know, that costs a lot of money, <laughs> for mm-hmm. one. And for two, with, these people who are doing it with the intention of like flipping them and selling them. It's, it's crazy. I think it's the volume of which it's doing too. Mm. I think a house slipper used to be a very, a niche kind of thing, but I think Mm -hmm. once people saw how profitable it can be, I think it was a massive flood into the system of people who are like, Oh, Oh, I can replace some tile. Oh, you want some crown molding? I can give you some crown molding. And next thing you know, I think it became a very, especially a young person thing to do to be able to make a, quite a massive amount of wealth quite quickly. And uh, especially in Albuquerque specifically, because we did have a lot of derelict buildings. We have a lot of foreclosures. We just, we have the space as well, if you think about it. And land prices are not too shabby. So there's just amazing opportunity to make a lot of capital. But we make it clear, like Danny said, we're not against people updating a house. I'm not against cupcake shops and fusion food. I'm not against (laughs) beer gardens. I'm not against yoga studios. (laughs) Yes, especially if there's goats. I'm not I'm not yeah. against any of those things. It's about who it's for. Yeah. And yeah, that's I kind no, of No, I think that's that, a so. great question. It's like who who is it for? Who's benefiting? Mm-hmm. Who is running these businesses? Why did they choose this neighborhood? Like there's a lot of questions I have. Would I be into a goat yoga studio opening around the corner from my house? Yes. <laughs> would I would I be suspicious as to what it was doing in my neighborhood? Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And who and who what place did it take? What used to be there? Mm-hmm. But that's that's another thing is like so like I've already said, I live in a neighborhood that is like probably in danger of being gentrified. And in fact, it is kind of like a huge pushback within my neighborhood association about any time someone wants to apply for a business designation of their land or people want to open a business or people want to apply for a liquor license or any of those things like People get real real pushback on, on those things because we do live in, in a poor neighborhood. But on the other hand, we have all of these empty, undeveloped lots. Exactly. Like So part of me is like, I would definitely be interested in something being here, in particular, if it was serving the community that is mm. already here. I am less interested in bringing people into our, our neighborhood. And I say this as a person who has only lived in this neighborhood for three years. So, I mean, it's also, I have to recognize and reconcile that part as well. I think my, my own personal relationship with my neighborhood is a little more complicated because I do have family that lives in this neighborhood. I went to high school in this neighborhood. <laughs> like I have a long relationship with the neighborhood, even though 
I've only been a homeowner in this neighborhood for less than three years. Mm, I see that. It's so that's why I think this particular topic is so divisive. I remember watching it's been over a year, uh, Kimmy Schmidt. The, mm. Yeah, and they, they talk about gentrification quite a bit. And I remember this one particular episode, they were talking about like Wi-Fi being brought into the neighborhood and some characters being very up in arms about it. And I'm like, well, that's what's so difficult about this is like this need of progress and going forward. But once again, is that going to be doing the long term damage to the neighborhood of like, yes, I would love those empty lots to be because that doesn't make a neighborhood look good either. That doesn't uplift the community either you know what i'm saying and so that that's the slippery slope and i mean but that's the effects of gentrification that's that's what happens there's this space you start making these nice beautiful albuquerque high lofts and we have people who can come in these young professionals who are polite apparently and they they uh-huh. come in and they're like well where am i gonna eat where am i gonna hang out and of course then people like there's a need there's this beautiful loft that's just been built and they start you know raising the rent on the properties of those around them and also small business owners and next thing you know there's just become this huge push out of those who are originally in the neighborhood and it's this war that's going on for territory that is really heartbreaking and yeah. unfortunately on on the onset in the vast majority it tends to be divided by race and i think people are afraid to put that in the label but on the other side of that danny can people of color gentrify um i mean if we're going back to this this definition that you shared from the urban displacement project absolutely <laughs> people mm. of color can gentrify i would push back on it a little bit i would say it's complicated right <laughs> yes but, but i think like you know at at the base level people of color can gentrify to a certain extent particularly when we're talking about gentrification we aren't exclusively talking about race we're also mm-hmm. talking about class mm-hmm. and and i think as you mentioned part of it is also intention right i think like a person buying a single family home or in the case of like a more urban center a single family apartment if it's a person buying a family buying a single family dwelling and uh, with the intention to live there. That is a different sort of situation than a developer coming in mm-hmm. to renovate an area. It's a complicated issue. And I think I'm definitely colored by my own personal <laughs> experience, right? Like, I don't want to believe that I'm a gentrifier, but I did move into a historic neighborhood where pretty much on my street, it's only like, four families because there's so many families who own multiple houses, like multiple generations. My neighbor, also her mother or two houses over, her mother lives across the street and then like her like cousin lives like two houses down. So it's like (laughs) it, it, it has like a very distinctive history to it. And here I am. I just move in without the same connection to the neighborhood that many of the people in the neighborhood have. And then, you know, like my husband likes to joke and that I've also like brought in my white husband, like the first white guy on the street. <laughs> and then and then like a year later, a 
two houses down, three houses down, another mixed race couple bought that house. And so now my husband isn't the only white guy in the neighborhood. And he likes to give the other guy some some side eyes, like, why are these white people moving into our neighborhood? (laughs) It's spreading. It's contagious. And, and, And that's like something that we are kind of reckoning with. It's like we were like the first in this like group of people who have started to move in to our neighborhood. Another house on our street just sold also. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think people of color can be to a certain extent gentrifiers, but I think you also have to look at the intention behind it. Something else to consider is like how much are these people engaging with the community that already exists and becoming part of that community rather than changing the feel or the flavor of the community, right? Like I moved in, but I didn't also like bring in the yoga studios, right? Like, I think that's, that's a different, a different sort of conversation and and something that I feel like if you are fighting fighting against yourself trying <laughs> to not be a gentrifier because really the reality is most of us cannot afford to be Girl. choosy about where we live right? right like this was also by far the cheapest house that we've looked at <laughs> and that's also part of it price is also part of it and if you can't afford to be choosy about where you live you also have to consider that you are not just buying a house, but you are buying into an already existing community. And so Mm. it's not up to you to come in and make the community fit you, but you have to think about how do I fit into this community? Oh, that's so true. And I think that is the role, I think it's the responsibility of people of color coming in. So I was reading, it's like this kind of poem-esque kind of article about she's a, uh, queer black poet and she talks about her longing to be in Harlem and it's Mm. funny because I actually read another article about another woman who was a writer who wanted to go to Harlem they wanted to experience that they wanted to live that dream but they felt like they were part of the gentrification they came there there wasn't a part of that community they they came but they talked about how different they were from the community they weren't the black of harlem they were the black of you know indianapolis they were the black of, you know what i mean it was so funny yeah. reading these two different articles that had a lot of parallels within them and she was just talking about how she desired to have more inclusion for her queerness but within that community there wasn't a lot of representation of her so, but in fear of bringing more of that inclusion to the neighborhood, am I changing it? Am I gentrifying it to fit? Like you were saying, my needs and my roles are... So just dealing with that battle within herself of, I came here to be in touch with a culture that I want to be invested in that's part of me, but there's still a part of me that wants to long to fit in and this is not necessarily fitting in with me. It's it's weird. And they're talking about this phenomenon of people of color who are kind of flocking back to these areas that reflect who they are on the outside, but not necessarily who they are on the inside. And it's really interesting. And it kind of, they get there thinking they're going to have this connection to their race and where they belong. But meanwhile, they kind of bring also their own needs and wants and desires that look a lot like gentrification. So like you said, it's that intention is so important. Incredibly, incredibly complicated. (laughs) No, and I think that's an excellent point. Sometimes it can feel like you're like a 
a sleeper agent, right? Because yes. you can pass on the outside as being part of the neighborhood, but on the inside, you're struggling with this idea of like, am I gentrifying this neighborhood? Mm, oof. It's, it's a lot to wrap your mind around. It certainly is. Do you think all gentrification is bad? People talk about gentrification. Uh, like, and I touched on this, I guess, a little bit, gentrification being a good thing, right? Like my neighbor saying, oh, yeah, bring in the soccer stadium because we are going to be able to, you know, raise the values on our houses. So that's that's a good thing. Or and I even had a, one of my neighbors saying that they could uh, charge for... Uh, parking in front of their house Ooh, or, you know, sell like, bottles of water or snacks <laughs> uh, to the soccer goers. <laughs> People see the benefits of gentrification. What are your thoughts on this? Is all gentrification bad? Can it be good? When is it good? It, see, I think even right there is where I kind of struggle with it being all bad or or is it good or some parts good i read an article that kind of got underneath my skin about it's a myth you know gentrification is used in a negative mm. light when i'm just it, i felt like it was being very dismissive of some of the who wrote that article you, girl you don't you know it was the washington post <laughs> <laughs> but what when i think of gentrification when i ask myself is not necessarily good or bad but who and the why it like who does it benefit? Why does it benefit in the long run? So like I said, I thought about like the Wi-Fi being brought into certain neighborhoods or fiber wire or whatever the kids are calling it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's Is it going to benefit that community for them to have more reliable, faster internet services? Then yes. Yeah. Then I'm for it. Are they bringing it in because they're having a whole other like subdivision of Google or something like that coming in and they need more firepower? Does that make sense? It's who is it benefiting from in the long run and why are they bringing this in? So a lot of these neighborhoods, people come in for the historical value, but why? So you you feel a part of it. You want to feel artsy. You want to feel inspired. Or it's like we want to come in and restore this and have this be a meeting place for the community that's already there. That's fantastic. Why are you opening up a goat yoga studio? I want to help people of color deal with trauma and stress because I'm going to make it affordable on a sliding scale to be able to come here and do it. Cool. Like, you, you know, it's one of those things of are you getting to know the community? Are you taking in the mindset of the effects that's going to have, especially if you're a small business? Oh, is there a business already that might be struggling a little bit that I could partner with to do that? If I'm getting a house here, what's it's kind of what you're saying. Am I taking my needs into consideration and my budget in the long run, what's best for my family, or does it have my favorite coffee shops there? It's just, it's the intention. It's the who, it's the why. I don't know. It's probably not a very good answer, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> I I get into these head spaces where I'm like, how does even owning land or a house make sense? within the world, <laughs> um, which is, you know, <laughs> my own radical views of, of things, I suppose. And yet here I am a homeowner. But I think part of the issue for me, a big part of the issue, right, is capitalism oh. and who is benefiting from these systems and why. And I struggle with it a lot because I feel so... So one of the things that I, I've often said is, how can I feel patriotic 
for a country that does not value human life and does not allow everyone a safe place to live. And I think that is is a thing that I struggle with with gentrification because I, I see the cost of housing going up in relation to the quality, the quality of the housing being improved mm. in a neighborhood or the different resources or different businesses or different places within a neighborhood being improved. And and I can't help but worry about people who are pushed out and where they're going to live. And on that hand, I'm like, yes, it's all bad. It's all terrible. <laughs> but on the other hand, I recognize that it's part of larger systems that I have a problem with, right? Like mm-hmm. like I said, like living in a country where like we have such a huge homeless population and we have exactly. like these systems set up to benefit the people who have the capital to purchase these houses and improve them and sell them and developers. I think that going back to what we were saying earlier, like wanting to improve your neighborhood and have more resources and have more good things in your neighborhood is not inherently bad. Mm-mm. Because that's that's all all of us are trying to do, right? Yes. Like we want to live somewhere nice and comfortable with the things that we need, and like how amazing would it be to live in a neighborhood where like your work is close by, you can yes. walk and get groceries, like all these things, right? Like that would be incredible. So like I like you think that it is a complicated issue. Think that by reducing it to good or bad, we are doing a disservice, in particular, turning a blind eye towards some larger systemic issues that we need to discuss and refine somehow. And then also recognizing like it's like it's like the environmental issues, right? Like Mm -hmm. me not using straws isn't going to (laughs) save the world. Like I need to put pressure on these larger corporations that are doing more harm to the world than I could ever do in my lifetime. And I think it's similar with gentrification. Like, yes, I should be aware of my own role as a gentrifier, but I should also be aware that. If I want to fight against these systems, I need to take a look at where I can push back harder. Mm, I love that. I And that is such a beautiful way of just being like as like a gentrifier, being that word and making it so self-identifying and taking all of that on instead of being like, can you be gentra-mindful? Mm. <laughs> while taking on what is actually the main source of gentrification, which is the lack of affordable housing, which is not Mm -hmm. regulating bank-owned property, not having rent control, racial disparities and mortgage lending, mortgage discrimination, like tackling those systems and being like, wow, this is actually where it's coming from, the cascade, like the actual real source of this and attacking Mm -hmm. that and realizing how – I'd rather get down to the real sickness instead of choking out the symptoms, which is really nice coffee places. And like you said, being able to walk to work, which I don't think is, it's not a bad desire. It's just, we need to start holding these other bigger systems accountable. And I'm I'm hoping so. I think more people are having these hard conversations and it's actually funny, not funny. I watched uh, She's Gotta Have It. The second mm. season actually had a lot, a lot uh, to do with gentrification and talking about those systems. And, and I think more mainstream media, art, they're bringing 
this topic up to people and kind of putting it in their faces and saying, you know, the ball is in our court. We need to talk to our elected officials and talk about what we want and why we want it here. But most of like, and who it's for, we want the benefits. Right. And one of my favorite movies, which you've talked about a lot, Blind Spotting deals very heavily with gentrification and this idea of, well, what happens when you look like the gentrifiers, even though you are not? Like you are from mm-hmm. that neighborhood, right? We see one of the main characters really struggle with that uh, at a party where the hipsters think he's a hipster. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And that's why I'm going to go live in the woods. That's <laughs> that's the best way yeah. until, you know, all the woodland creatures call you out for disrupting nature. Yeah, I completely think that, a, you know, a squirrel's going to start throwing nuts at my window and I... <laughs> I mean, and for me, and for me, like, I always, like, take this all back to, like, we all live on stolen land in this country anyway. Girl. Like, it's it's so complicated, right? Like, Super. we gotta get, we gotta get into all of it. Like, like this country is all stolen land, my friends. Girl, this is about to turn into a two-hour episode, because you know. I know. You know, <laughs> you know. know I'm ready. Because even, like you said, the ownership I- idealism is so ridiculous. It's, it's, uh, anyway, uh, it's like giving a thimble as a kiss. It's just not it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll plop some more resources uh, to mm. learn more about gentrification because there's only so much we can get into in an hour. Mm. We'll put some in, in the show notes. I have like a really, really great podcast. Presumably you like podcasts if you're listening to this. A podcast series that goes into a few different specific cities and the gentrification that happens there and, and does a really good job of looking at it from all the angles. The podcast is called There Goes the Neighborhood. Quick plug for them. I think it's like a really great starting Ooh. point. There's some books and some articles and some things also that we can share. Mm-hmm. Oh, even just about redlining, there was a really great little short video about redlining that I actually watched in a facilitating meeting that was so, it was compact. It actually went over a lot of the history that I kind of went over. Watching people watch this video that have never heard of it is very interesting to kind of see. Once again, they don't teach you that in school. So yeah, we'll link that below. I don't know. It's a... There's resources. You can't say no one told you. (laughs) Yes. Let's, let's, uh, let's palette cleanse. (laughs) Yes. Let's move into our happy place, shall we? Mm. What's making you happy this week? I'm filled with shame. Oh, my best- no. <laughs> no. No, 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 it's, 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 like- <laughs> it's just Disney Plus. It's just Disney Plus. I've watched so much Chippendale Rescue Rangers. It's ridiculous. What? Is that really? What, my happy place is? No, but I actually yeah. have watched a lot of Chippendale <laughs> Rescue Rangers. My daughter has, like, cleaned to all the classics. Chippendale! Yeah! Rescue and I mean, I mean, honestly, it's so funny. Do you know what's really super weird? The question that we asked in one of our minisodes years ago, where it's like your cartoon crush or who would you like to like, oh, cartoon right. kiss? I'm like, why did I not say Gadget? She's a total yeah. hottie. 
I love Gadget. I love me some Gadget. It's amazing. Why did I say crush on Gadget? It was just one of those things of like, these cartoons still hold up. No, but seriously, um, my happy place is just really basic and self-absorbed and I'm filled with shame. But it is tattoos. I got a new tattoo about a week. What? It'll be a few weeks by the time this comes out. And I have been wanting to get a tattoo. Then COVID hit. And both of the waiting lists I was on were two separate artists obviously got pushed back to the time where I'd be leaving the country. And then the tattoo artist in Albuquerque that I wanted to see once again got pushed back till 2021. I'm not going to be there. And so like three separate tattoo appointments failed. Anyway, a lot of last minute things came together and I finally got this little tattoo. It was like a little memento as my time here in England kind of comes to a close. It just makes me happy. It's nothing crazy. It's super basic, but I'm, that's What is it? It is a storm in a teacup. It's a cute, it's done in like the really traditional thicker lines tattoo style, which is funny. I don't actually have anything like that. I normally like things a little bit lighter because my skin's darker, but it's a storm cloud with a lot of lovely lining work in it with two little golden lightning bolts over a teacup. It's a storm in a teacup. <laughs> cute. I love it. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's heard a phrase. It's like making a mountain out of a molehill, but I'm like, has not 2020 been a storm in a freaking teacup? That's true. It's true. It, it has been I mean, so but it's, much. It's also been just a storm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just exactly. A well, storm. <laughs> a straight up one. Well, it's just been like so much in such a little amount of time. And I'm just yeah. thinking like, yeah, that, that's pretty much my time. And I wanted to, I was just going to get a teacup really for my time here and do something really super tiny in a small place but it ended up being a bit bigger and I added the storm part so I really I'm really happy with it and uh, tattoos are one of those weird things I feel because it's a privilege because it's money Mm -hmm. and yeah I think that's a big thing you're paying for something that doesn't add any monetary value it is just pure for you and I think I don't know. I'm just programmed like anything that's just for me is bad. <laughs> and that's not right. You got to fight not, that. You got to fight I that do. feeling. I do. And I fought it even while getting it. I'm like, I could have used that money, got my daughter some new books. We're about to move. We should be saving. It's terrible. The whole, even while getting it. And I was just like, Girl, had to fight you can't that. buy new books and then move, but you could buy a tattoo and then move. Yeah, that's so true. I'm like, I'll pack the books. But you, do you know what I mean? It's just like that mindset yeah. of like, our budget's good. Like, we're more than fine. I wouldn't get it if we didn't have it. And she's awesome. And it was just one of those things you have to fight against it. But it makes me so happy. It's healing up really well. And I like it. Oh, good. That's a great <laughs> happy place. I've mm-hmm. been thinking about a new tattoo, but I'm also like, a little bit weirded out about a tattoo and COVID times. I don't yeah. know how to feel about it. Wearing a mask the whole time was very uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. But on the other hand, I'm like, all the tattoo parlors I've ever been to have been like the cleanest place I've ever been. Girl. So I mean, like, if anyone knows how to deal with COVID, it's tattoo artists. <laughs> right. There, here's the thing. Like, did you see that uh, tattoo places in Albuquerque were sending the hospital supplies? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing here. They're like, we got gloves and masks. We got you. <laughs> Right. I was like, yes, true. tell them, tell them how it's done. It's so great. A lot of the tattoo place here too, they were like, we're handy. They were like making masks for the NHS. And I thought they all like would get together and been like, since we're not tattooing, we might as well make masks. And so it was actually like 
Oh, I love tattoo the tattoo community. <laughs> yeah. What would you get? Well, this is a bit of a preview because this will be my next tattoo. I just don't know Ooh. when. Um, I'm going to get the Grey Lady from Harry Potter because I'm all about subtle <gasps> nerd. Um, and Ooh. I have this creepy, creepy lady arm going on. Um, she really does, guys. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and so the the next addition to it will be the Grey Lady. And um, in particular, there's an illustration from the British re-release of the Harry Potter books in hardback that are house-specific in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's mm. Stone, the Ravenclaw edition, obviously. There's this really beautiful line drawing of the Grey Lady. Ooh, I'm so stoked. That's going to be so good. Yeah. So it'll just look like, you know, a old-fashioned lady with dark hair and who's a ghost to anybody who doesn't know but to the select few who will appreciate my subtle nerd tattoo it should be a, a really cool one. Oh, i'm so excited all right COVID, <laughs> come on get over yourself we need this i know cake. i also just have to like wait till my comfort level is there it'll happen yeah totally you absolutely do and this was a tiny tiny like literally it two slots is what the whole shop could actually it was a tiny little place oh yeah here and so yeah you do have to be comfortable but that's for a lot of things i know people who still haven't gone proper shopping yet because they're just not oh, there yeah. there's just too much but anyway what's girl what's your happy place my happy place is harry potter related actually yes. <laughs> so so nice nice <laughs> segue, segue there there is a series happening that's harry potter at home have you heard of this no so it is a podcast, and I believe there's YouTube videos to go along with it also. But it is different celebrities reading Harry Potter out loud at home, <gasps> at their homes yes, during yes, COVID. Yes, I'm a liar. I saw yeah. this. Sorry, I did. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm so I was like really excited about it when it first came out months and months ago, right? Like I think it was june july some point during the summer i was really excited about it the first one was daniel radcliffe obviously because who else are you going to have start off harry potter <laughs> and like the audio quality is varying between episodes my husband was like daniel radcliffe's is so basic and boring <laughs> but <laughs> i think i think it's true like being the first one is hard but i think like as it's going on you know you have people reading and doing the voices so last night i took a bath and i wasn't planning on putting this on to listen to but i had already cued it on my this is a whole whole other thing. I'd already cued it on my Spotify. I don't usually listen to podcasts on Spotify, but it's only on Spotify. Mm. Because we were listening to it while we were working on a puzzle. <laughs> so Love I like cued several episodes. And so like I put on a song while I was in the bath. And then like the next thing that came up was an episode of this. And I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to listen to. But then I heard who was narrating this episode and I like could not turn it off. Damika, I'm just going to, this is probably copyright, but I'm just going to play a little bit for you right now oh, so okay. you can hear who narrated this episode. A sudden slamming and loud footsteps made the three of them look up. 
They hadn't realized what a racket they'd been making. But of course, someone downstairs must have heard the crashes and the trolls' roars. A moment. <laughs> yes. So, Whoopi, how could I turn off no, Whoopi? <laughs> you can't. You absolutely can't. She has one of the most iconic voices ever. I, I mean, you can tell. You can tell she started off with a one woman show because she instantly knows how to captivate an entire room's focus and attention. Oh, what a freaking treasure. And her voice for Professor Flitwick is like amazing. Is it what you think it is is in your brain? It's like so high pitched. And so like, it's just wonderful. I love it. Oh my goodness. Well, I know what I'm listening to on my nonstop flight from here to Washington. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah it's it's totally worth it and then the episode i was going to turn it off after but then the ep- next episode was my love david Tennant, um and he just has like i thought Whoopi was good but then i heard david Tennant, and i was like i just want him to read all the harry potter books to me like he I, does all the ooh. voices and and then he had a special guest too for reading for Lee Jordan doing the Quidditch commentary was David Beckham, the soccer player. <laughs> it was amazing. So, so yeah, definitely check out Harry Potter at home. I mean, I, I think it's just my default to go back to Harry Potter being read to me as, as a relaxation device. I love it. That should be like copyrighted. That it's like take two and call me in the morning. It's like read some Harry Potter and have some tea. Exactly. All right. Well, let's let's wrap it up. If you like the show, then you should let us know. Or mm-hmm. if you have any ideas about what you would like us to talk about in the future, or if you have any thoughts or feelings about gentrification, you can send us an email by racialunicorns at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at biracialunicorns, and we're on Twitter at biracialmagic. Please follow the amazing Deli Pop art. She's made our very iconic unicorn photos. It's absolutely fabulous. Please, while you're there, follow the amazing Joseph Scott, who's made our awesome intro and outro music and while you're there listening to our podcast why don't you go ahead and write us a cute little review we would appreciate it one we want to know what you're interested in what you're liking about the show and two it actually really does help us out as far as algorithm and science and it's, we, we would just appreciate it. We would love to read it. And also a big, huge thank you to those who have reached out and gave us their comments. We are working on trying to incorporate those tidbits in the show as we're moving on into this next phase of showdom. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked while you're there. And if you really like us and support us, you can also buy us a cup of coffee because I drink copious amounts of it. So yeah, that's all going to be on our me page and that's going to be all linked into our show notes as well. Yes. And buying us a cup of coffee could literally be coffee, but actually we will <laughs> take that money and use it to make the show even better. This is just us doing mm-hmm. this out of the love for doing this, uh, but it would be cool if we could have at least the expenses we incurred doing this uh, <laughs> covered instead of our time and our money of making this happen. So we really appreciate it. If you like the show, please support us. That's so awesome. I'm so stoked. Let us know what you thought of the episode. 
I had feelings. I want to hear yours. Yes. We will be back next week with a mini-sode and in two weeks with another full, ranty, rambly episode. (laughs) And we will have all the feelings then, too. We will. It's true. All right, y'all. Peace. Out. Out.